The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Our text this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Star Church. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I ask of you, this morning that you would do what I ask of you each day and especially those where I stand in your pulpit opening your word and proclaiming them over your beloved people. Lord, I ask that you would magnify your son. That you would make much of Jesus this morning, Lord. That you would glorify him in our midst. That your spirit would do what the spirit delights to do. Lord, to make him known. To make him big. I pray that you would lift our eyes to behold him, Lord. That we would be captivated by his glory by his grace by his goodness by his kindness by his majesty dear lord do it for us here in this space today the very spirit that inspired the words on this page the spirit that indwells me as the preacher the spirit that indwells this church as the hearers lord let him do all the work lord to land these scriptures safely in our hearts i ask that in jesus precious name amen you know i am uh I don't want to sit here and just repeat like everything that you just heard again and again, but the truth is is that this morning isn't nothing. This morning is the culmination of a long story, one that was written before time, but that we've gotten to see take place with our own eyes. And there are some faces in this room, like Pastor Robert acknowledged, that I don't know, which makes my heart sing. And there are others that are still faithfully here these many years after I've departed, which also makes my heart sing. But to look out at this body and to say that there's a story that predates you and a story that is ahead of you, for which some of us know some of the details, but none of us know all, where the Lord has an intention to magnify the Son upon the face of the earth. 
to advance his gospel kingdom across the face of the earth and to claim for himself a remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation across the face of the earth. That's the work that he's about, that he's been about since the beginning, that he's about in your life, that he's about at the Source Church, and that we will see come to fruition on the day of Christ's return. We're going to read a little bit this morning about that day. And so before we get into the text, I want you to understand kind of where we are in the story. You guys heard it. I'm Adam, lead pastor of Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. We're just 30 minutes east of St. Louis, three miles west of Scott Air Force Base. We were sent down in 2016, me in September, my wife and my kids down in September. Pastor Michael from this church was sent down in May of the same year, a few months before us. We got down there to plant a new gospel outpost. That was after... Seven years of seeing this church planted as Pastor Robert responded to the call of the Lord to leave a church plant in rural Texas back in 2009 to leave after, what was it, nine years you were there maybe? Coming up here and making that happen. Since then, like Ryan pointed out, Source Church sent one of its pastors down to Georgetown. Mercy's Door sent one of its pastors down to Georgetown. We said, hey, why don't you guys do it again? We'll continue the labor in this city. And there's an additional context in which you guys don't get to see, and so I want to explain it for you guys this morning, that we did accidentally planted in a military community. We looked up and 60% of our church was active duty military because we were three miles from that base. And so every three years, the Lord is moving his saints through our church and then sending them out and scattering them all over the world. And so we've just said, gosh, you have built in a mechanism to send the saints across the face of the earth. What do we want What do you want us to do with them while they're with us before you scatter them? The Lord is advancing his kingdom and he's doing it through the church. And you guys have been a sending church again and again, and there are people scattered and sent that you will never meet, that you'll never hear the stories of, and yet you were the seed that the Lord broke open to sprout something beautiful all across the world. And I want to thank you and tell you that you guys are dear to me, that you are often and always in my prayers. This is the church that afforded me my very first opportunity to preach the gospel, and it was at a time where nobody should have done that. And after I preached the first one, I really shouldn't have got a second chance. But your faithful labors with me all those years ago has produced gospel fruit, not just in my life and in my home, but fruit that you just don't know. I want to thank you for that. This morning, we are continuing the sermon series through uh, Hebrews, and we're in chapter 10. I want to thank Pastor Scott for giving me such an easy passage this morning. And in this passage this morning... We're going to read about the day, the day of the Lord, and I'll give you the, on the front end kind of the flow that I want to take you guys through. Our author this morning is going to first open up with this loud assurance of our salvation, the assurance of the basis on which we stand on solid ground. He's going to move from that assurance to an exhortation. He's going to talk to the church about what it looks like for us to do together this thing called running the race, this endurance and the role of the church in encouraging one another in it. And then he's going to give a sober warning against this thought of falling away. And we're going to talk about that in two different manners this morning. And so we're going to kind of move through the text in order the way that the author's written it. And in it, my hope, I'm praying it as I say it, is that the Lord will reveal to you 
that you are called into a confidence if you belong to him, that if he has called you his own, that he will not lose you, that you cannot wriggle free of his grasp, that that confidence will produce a response in you of courage and boldness and endurance, that the Lord would forbid my mouth from sowing any seeds of doubt in the children of God this morning. If you belong to him, you are his and you are safe and you are secure. But likewise, that if there's anyone in this room for which that isn't true, you don't belong to him, but you're walking right alongside folks who do, learning from them what it looks like to look like you're walking with him, but you yourself have not had the indwelling spirit come upon you that he'd reveal it to you this morning rather than finding out on the great day that you might repent and receive Christ today that he might take up residence in you and lead you evermore. That's what we're after this morning. Don't leave. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18, our author writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I'm going to make some assumptions about what Pastor Scott has taught you guys. I haven't gone back and listened to your whole sermon series, but I know he's faithful to exposit carefully. And so I, I trust that you know some of these things. Forgive me if I'm, if I'm repeating some things. But I know that last week that Pastor Scott preached this last verse, verse 18, where it says, verse 17 and 18, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So Pastor Scott would have talked to you guys about the difference between a shadow of a thing and the substance of a thing. That there were formerly, in the former days, offerings for sin that were meant to point us to the greater atonement that found its fulfillment in the person of Christ. That when Christ laid down his life and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, that this did away with the old sacrificial system. And so he ends this last section in verse 18. We're saying, so where there's forgiveness of these found in Christ alone, there's no longer any offering for sin. Why is he talking about this? Because he's writing to the church in Jerusalem in the years following the ascension of Christ. Where this, this letter is written to the, to the Christians in Jerusalem in roughly the year 65 AD. What's going on in the year 65 AD? We are at the height of the persecution of Nero, is what's going on in 65 AD. We're at the height of it. Can I describe it for you a little? Maybe you've already heard it. Let me describe it a little bit more. We are talking about in this generation that this letter is written in, we see Paul beheaded. We see Peter crucified upside down. These are the father figures of the faith. Like the books that we're reading in the New Testament are written by them. They're dead, brutally murdered on account of their Christianity. Women are being tied to bulls and dragged through the city streets to their death as a public display. Christians are being lit on fire to light the gardens of Nero. And people are being invited, if they hate Christians, to come and see the display. History records that he would ride around in his chariot laughing as their screams were heard out. He was writing a letter to the church in Jerusalem at this time, 
endurance, running the race, finishing well, it makes some sense that we're talking about this. They were facing great persecution, unlike any you've ever seen. And many had concluded that safety would be found in returning to the old way. We're in an era of church history where it was safe for a time to be Jewish. It certainly wasn't safe to be Christian. Soon after Nero, it wouldn't be safe to be either. But the solution for some was to return to the old way, to renounce Christianity and to go back to the slavery of Judaism, go back to the old sacrificial system, to go back to the old purification rites, to go back to the old way. But our author says in verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these, where he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more in this new covenant. There is no longer any offering for sin. It's not how it works anymore. You can't just go back and start heaving bulls up on an altar again. That's how it works. There's no going back. Now that you know about the eternal perfect sacrifice made in Jesus Christ, there is no going back. It no longer remains. The ship's been burned. There's one way, and it's a narrow way. And this is where he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. He's describing the replacement of the curtain in the temple. The temple still stood at the time of the writing of this letter. It would come down within five years, but it stood today. And in that temple, there was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the place where the people were able to gather. And that tem- and that, that, in the temple, that curtain, behind it, only one was able to go, the high priest. And he was only able to pass through that curtain once a year, and it was to make sacrifice for the atonement of the people. And on the day that Jesus was crucified, the scriptures record that that veil was torn, indicating that the curtain that, sep- that, 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 the curtain that indicated sin that was separating man from the holy places was torn. As Jesus' flesh was torn, the veil was torn, and access was created to the holy places. And here you want to stitch back up the curtain? You want to go back to the old way, that's where you're going to find safety in the face of persecution? In renouncing the new way, the living way that has been made for you and returning to the dead way that was but a shadow of what was to come? No, our author says, brothers, since we have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not by the blood of rams, but the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, no high priest that enters the holy places one time a year to make atonement, but a great high priest who has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is making perfect, permanent intercession for the people day by day at the right hand of the Father, appealing, saying, you gave that one to me, Father. I I've covered that one in my blood. That high priest, the living priest, the better priest making appeal for you stands in for you, and that is why by confidence we enter into the holy places by his blood. He says, therefore, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're talking about drawing near, curtain torn, the veil of the flesh of Christ giving us access. He's encouraging us into 
boldness and confidence. And pronouns are super important in this passage, guys. We need to hear words like brothers. We have confidence to enter the holy places through the curtain, through the flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope and how, without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Guys, unless we believe that the author of this book is an unbeliever, then he's identifying with the people he's writing with, which means this is penned to believers. Thank you, brother. This is penned to believers, which means what is about to come, these words and warnings that are about to come, are addressed to the church. It's important that we get that right, because a lot of people get it wrong. These words are for believers. So identifying with them, he encourages them with this bold language about the assurance of their pardon, the assurance of their access, that you belong at the table with the king, that you can walk boldly into the throne room of grace, that, that this has been purchased for you, that you have a pure heart, a cleansed heart, pure water has washed you. Do away with the old ritual cleansing rites. Just walk in. You are clean. It makes me think of the night that Jesus washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, and Peter, when he tells him, I must wash you or you have no part in me, and he says, then my head and my body also, and Jesus says, there's no need for that because you're already clean. You need only a foot washing. The one who is clean does not need to bathe. He only needs to wash his feet. This is the nature of repentance in the life of the church. Why is it that I can stand before you and say that you are perfectly spotless, perfectly pure, cleansed and righteous and holy before God, and yet you still need to repent? These are foot washings. Your repentance is foot washings. It's to say, I know that I can't in my sin loose myself of my right standing with God, but by repentance, I wash my feet that I have daily confident access to enter the throne room of grace to, for my foot washing. Restore me yet again, Father, in your likeness. Sanctify me. Clean me with sureness that he will because you're his. It's different than clean me so that I can be made right with you. I am right with you. And therefore, I am confident that when I come to you for the foot washing, I will, be, I will receive it. It's different. It's the difference between a faith that says we do in order to become right with God, and we are right with God, and therefore we do. They're encouraging this confidence to move forward, this confidence to move forward. And then in verse 24, he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so here he moves from this proclamation of what is true on the merits of of Christ alone. You are made right with God. You are saved by the merits of Christ alone. 
the work of another on your behalf. Jesus Christ living the perfect life that you were due to live, dying the death that you deserve to die, and taking up his life again is the only one who can do such a thing that when we join him in his death, we join him in his resurrection and to eternal life, salvation with him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, him alone. And our author opens this passage this morning with that declaration. Your confidence, your assurance, the full assurance of your faith, it's that it's with him. It's a gift from him. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him, and that all who the Father gives to me will come to me, and that all who are mine, I will not lose a one. Your confidence is in the fact that you are the Father's gift to the Son, and the Father does not give temporary gifts to his Son. To believe that you can fall away is to believe that the Father can give bad gifts to the Son. Have confidence in this. You are eternally secure by his merits alone. And yet, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let us consider together, let's go through this one line at a time, uh, how to stir up one another to love and good works. Well, this makes sense. Jesus said that it is by your love for one another that they will know that you are truly my disciples. The, the response of the church upon seeing the confidence of the work done for them is to then work out in one another's lives their salvation. When we talk about working out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is the work of the Lord in you, what we're talking about is saying, gosh, if this is true, it changes everything. Do you want to talk about persecution in the early Christian church, about the Romans and all that they were doing to the Christians? Well, they also had a legacy of discarding babies. All right, when a child was born, if they were undesirable in any way, that there'd be discard piles where they'd be left out to die. Churches start showing up around these piles and taking in these babies and raising them at great cost to themselves with no benefit to themselves on account of seeing what Jesus did for them and what it compels them to do for others. Their love for one another proclaiming the truth of the gospel or the great dignity with which they treated women in a time when women were considered second-class citizens, a great, great kind of spitting in the face of the culture of the times as they responded to what the Lord had done in their lives, their love for one another and for the people around them, proclaiming what had happened in them. So that a day would come where the Romans, who went from lighting them as candles, would go from making it the law of the land that Christianity is now the formal religion of the Roman Empire they start killing people for not being Christians. The kingdom advances as we consider how to stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. I've heard this preached many times as like a guilt trip to get you guys to show up on a Sunday. I'm not going to do it because it's so much more than that. It's so much bigger than that. But be here on Sunday. But so much more than that. When you talk about encouraging one another, considering thoughtfully how to stir one another up in love and good works and encouraging one another, some of that happens on a Sunday morning. I pray that I'm encouraging you this morning, that I'm stirring you up in love this morning. I want that. As we open the word of God, I want that to happen. As we sing out songs to him, I want that to happen. But how am I going to know specifically how to do that for Brett Paddock? In his living room, this is not just an argument for Sunday morning attendance. 
This is an argument for living life together, for bearing burdens together, for loving one another sacrificially from across a table, from doing this together out there. And it's out there that this love for one another is a great witness to the truth of Christianity. You know who sees what happens in here is Christians. But who sees you out there are future Christians. We don't take anything with us to heaven except maybe someone else. We stir one another up to love and good works. And, neglect, and we don't neglect to meet together as the habit of some, but we encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now this day that he's talking about is the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. And as we see that day advancing, every generation of the Christian church has been able to see that they say that they have seen with their eyes the day of the Lord drawing near. Because that's just mathematically every day the day gets closer. But their eyes have testified, he's coming soon. Whether it was those being persecuted here in 65 AD or whether it's you looking out at the coronavirus or whether it's, it's 1945 and it's people looking out at a war-torn, war-torn Europe, the day is advancing. And any day unknown to us, the trumpet will sound and Jesus will say, enough. And as it draws near, all the more. We seek out how to encourage one another in love and good works. Guys, those days that are long and black, suffering, when you're up against it, who knows? I've got people in my life who won't let me hide because they believe this. Sometimes I preach. I got this friend who reached out to me. He says, after I got done preaching, yeah, it really was flat today, man. You need guys like that. I could just tell that your heart wasn't in it, that you were somewhere else, that you were on cruise control. I, can, I know you well enough, and I've been walking with you long enough that I can tell when you're walking funny. I can see the limp because I know what your normal walk looks like because I put in the time not just Sunday mornings, but in life. He says, you can do that for a while. Sometimes it's the duty of service, but you can't do it for long. It's not okay long term. Tell me what you need. Let's get dinner. Who in your life is loving you like that? And before you feel bad about that, whatever your answer is, who are you loving like that? I can think of 30 people who you ought to be. I'm looking at them all the more as the day draws near. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's a doozy. The first thing I want to point out is the audience that we're talking to. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This sentence, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, is very similar to the sentence in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. So again, contextually, we're talking to a people who have seen the cost of following Christ and have seriously considered following those who have returned to Judaism. I'm just going to go back to this over here. It's safer. 
and him reminding them, well, now you're sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins to be found there, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Notice that he doesn't say that even, even here that will consume them, but that will consume the adversaries. He's talking about a fire. We're going to get there in a minute. We have an impulse to jump to hell on this. I'm going to walk us through it, but let's read one more sentence. Verse 28, whoever has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and he has outraged and, and has outraged the spirit of grace? I'm glad that you guys go left to right through whole books of the Bible here. It's so important. For, especially when you come upon a passage like this. I want to flip to Hebrews chapter 6 here this morning. You guys already heard it. There was a type of person described in chapter 6, verse 4. It sounds like this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." So here we're talking about, in Hebrews chapter 6, a rain that falls upon a field. Same rain falling on two fields. On the first field, produced forth fruit. Jesus said, unless a, seed falls in, a grain of seed falls, a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the seed of the gospel, takes root in a person, it produces gospel fruit, new life, and again, enduring life, eternal life. But when rain, gospel-scented rain, gospel-tinted rain, Christi, Christianity light falls on a field, what springs forth is thorns and thistles, and in this context, super easy to just Judaize Christianity. There's literally a group in this time called the Judaizers going around trying to Judaize Christianity. And the great risk to these people was to abandon Christianity as they first received it and to make it into something else, to add works of the law. But are we so different? Is our context, our culture so different? Because a lot of folks say, I'm Christian, and they mean totally different things when they say it, don't they? They do. To be Christian means to live a good life. To be Christian means to try to improve by the teachings of Jesus. To be Christian means, I don't know what it means, but I was born a Christian because my dad was a Christian, and so that's what Christian means. It's like a heritage. 
We can make it mean a lot of things. And everything but the true gospel produces thorns and thistles. But to have heard the truth, to have tasted it, to have seen it, to have considered it, to have understood it, and then to spit it out and say, I prefer the world. For that person, this author writes, it's impossible, impossible in their case, it says, to restore them again to repentance. I believe it's this type of person that is being addressed in our passage this morning. They've received the knowledge of the truth, verse 26, and then they go on sinning deliberately. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And I believe this to be true. It's experientially, guys, like as you walk, as you live life with folks, you'll meet folks who are like, yeah, I, I used to be Christian. I tried that. Didn't work for me. I'm this now. For that person to repent and return, far more difficult, you'll find, than for the person who has, is hearing these things for the first time. I considered them already. I just spit them out. I decided I didn't want them. It's harder. But I don't think that's primarily who we're talking about this morning. I think that we are talking about you. And we're talking about a day that is coming, a day of judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 to 15. If you want to flip there with me, I'll give you a second. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, same day, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." So we're not talking about bringing somebody's salvation into question here. This is why we open with the assurance of the salvation. That's not what's in question here. But what we're talking about is once that foundation has been laid, and I know I'm going to preach something super controversial, but I get to leave afterwards. Pastor Scott will deal with it, right? But, I, but listen, you will be in heaven with people who apostatized. People who renounce the faith will be worshiping Jesus in eternity. You want to know how I know? Because Peter, with an eyesight of Jesus and his greatest hour of need, renounced him three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And Jesus restored him. You're like, oh, you know what? That was before the cross, though. If he had done that after the cross, well, then now it's really good night. No, still, Peter, same guy, when the Judaizers come around, he's scared of them, rightly so, starts disassociating with the Gentile believer and, and, and preaching that the gospel is for Jew only, so that Paul has to rebuke him publicly. You think that you as a Christian are untouchable? That there's something you could never do? You could. There's nothing you can't do. But by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, you will produce the good works that he has predestined for you in your life, and all the rest is chaff. But the good news about chaff is that it will be burned on that last day as a refining fire so that all that is left is your glorification. 
but it's a dreadful thought and a glorious one, like having a leech and shaking as someone lights a fire underneath it to remove it. You're glad, but you're trembling. Back to our passage. There's a fur- this is a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, but for you, it will burn the chaff and leave only that which was built upon the foundation that was for the kingdom. This means that there are rewards in heaven. I haven't left myself time to preach this as a main point, but I want you to know that all that you've done for the kingdom of God and all that you've done in response to the gospel matters. It matters such that the refining fire on that day will beautify it. They'll be like gems in your crown that you will cast at the feet of Jesus. How much more ought we want to adorn the crown that we're going to present to Jesus? He's worth it. But also with this assurance that all the junk that we built on the firm foundation, it won't last. He's going to take care of that too. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus gave a parable about the different types of seed. You guys remember this? Not if you do. He said that when the gospel is spread, that sometimes the seed falls and it takes good soil and it takes deep root and it sprouts up and it bears much fruit. And this is, this is the gospel effect on the believer, the one who is made right with God. That for some it falls on the shallow soil and it doesn't take root, so it sprouts up fast, but then it burns up in the heat of the day because the roots never went deep to take in and drink in the fullness of the gospel. And then for others, it says that the plant was choked out by thorns and thistles, by the cares of the world. And there's a real sober warning in here about the wheat and the tares that only you can know, really, between you and God. Are you the plant that sprout up quickly, that can repeat the things you heard, that sounds good, I want that life, but you haven't repented of the sin in you for the forgiveness and remediation of your guiltiness before God that have been made pure before him as you surrender your life to Jesus and die with him and take up your cross and follow him? Is he your only hope in righteousness? Or is he an add-on to your life? Or like the one that's choked out by the cares of the world, did you maybe hear it? It sounded good, but that's for future Adam to worry about because right now I got bills to pay and people to please. Only you really know. But there's a day coming, the day. And on that day, the refining fire of God will be a beautiful thing for those who are covered in Christ as every knee bows and every tongue confesses, every tear is dried, everyone is made right. Everything is made right. But if you're standing before that refining fire in your own strength, you stand no chance. That's a consuming fire for the adversary, not a refining one that leaves gold shining brighter and silver shining brighter and gems shining brighter. It leaves wood and hay and chaff burnt up, worthless. On that day, Jesus said, 
that there will be many who come and they say, I did this in your name and I did that in your name. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. What? Adam, how can you stand up here and preach eternal security, preach such confidence in the throne and roof of God, and then preach that? I don't know, but he did. He somehow held the two together. What he's saying is, there's all the confidence in the world. Your faith is secure if it is bought by the blood of Christ. If it's bought by the blood of Christ. If it's not, it's not. This is a sobering thing, and maybe I'm not talking to you. And I hope I'm not talking to you. But I'm definitely talking to some of your neighbors. And I wonder if you care. Why we receive this encouragement all the more as the day is drawing near. Gather together and stir one another up in love and good works and encouraging one another. Let it be so. Let it be said of the Source Church, guys. You guys are part of a legacy that is being written by God on the face of the earth. Don't let it die with you. Continue on. Press forward. Receive this encouragement from me here today. Press on. Build one another up. Display the love of Christ in your communities. Let it be that you can tell the stories of God's great hand of salvation in Plainfield, Illinois. Let it be so. Come and visit my church with a report of all that God is doing in your context. Let it be so. If he's not back yet, the work's not done yet. Stay in the fight with me. Pray. Lord God, hard doctrines this morning in some ways, but I trust you, Lord. Use it how you see fit. Encourage your church, rebuke your church, build them up, convict them. Convict me. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for the believer who I have shook a little bit this morning, that you would put your comforting arm around them this morning and remind them you have been saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, but a gift of God that no one may boast, that we work from our secure identity and not for it. Comfort them now. For the one who's playing house in here today, knows how to talk like a Christian, but has never experienced renewal. Who wants that? Who can even now sense that you are calling them to repent and trust in you, or do it now. Claim them for your kingdom. You did it for me, and there's no good reason. You can do it for anyone. Then compel us onward, Lord, to encouraging one another spring one another on to endure till the end with the assurance that we will if we belong to you. I ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.